The following podcast is part of the Underdog Sports Podcast Network. For advertising information or to find more great podcasts, visit us at www.theunderdogsports.com and follow us on Twitter at RealTheUnderdog. You're listening to the Underdog Sports NBA Show with host Tyler Laurie and Zandrick Ellison. Brought to you by Underdog Sports. Tune in every week as Tyler and Zan recap the biggest storylines and news in the NBA. Welcome to the 33rd episode of the Underdog Sports NBA show. I am Tyler Laurie, and I am joined, as always, by my co-host on the left coast, Zandrick Ellison. And Zan... Before we get into how you're doing today, because I'm sure you want to talk Thrones and, and all this great stuff going on in the TV world, are you a Warriors fan now? Have you just, because you're in California, have you just become a Golden State Warriors fan now that they're up 2-0 and it, it seems like they're going to beat the Rockets? Yeah, that was it. This pushed me over the edge after two titles, what, three titles in four years. The, the fact that they won game two, <laughs> that, that's it. Um, no. And California is really big. I think people underestimate like how big the United States are and how big California is. But you're not rooting. You're not rooting for the Warriors. Oh, I am rooting for the Warriors, but that's a side issue. I I just think, you know, it's weird. Like, I as a fan, you t- last time you talked about like who you're you a fan of. I'm seem like a neutral fan in a way. I tend to like root for people that I think are underrated by the media or by fans or get too much hate. Um, and sometimes like you grandfathered into that. So like Kevin Durant, I thought was extremely underrated in Oklahoma City. And I thought he got too much shit for his decision to go to Golden State. So I kind of like defended him. Um, and now it's harder to say like you have to be sympathetic because he's won titles and, and everything else. But I still think he's underrated. And I still think he doesn't get the credit he deserves. I, there's a lot of people out there who are like, oh, he doesn't, deserve, you know, those titles are meaningless, blah, blah, blah. Like he's been the best player arguably in the world for the last couple of years. I mean, with a skill level we haven't seen in like 20 years. Um, and I, I defend that. I, I, I like to see him win like, with that. One of the things about this is a really good segue, Zan. So kudos to you, amazing job uh, introing the podcast. When Kevin Durant is locked in defensively, like he was at the start of Game Two, and it's even just simple stuff like Harden goes to try to finish on the right side of the hoop, and Durant blocks it, and it's like you know that's going to be a tough shot to take all night. He is your to your point the the best player in the NBA, and he doesn't do it. He doesn't do it every single night. He, He he really doesn't. But when he wants to be engaged on the defensive end, and, and this is annoying, this should be a knock on him sometimes that like, hey, you could be a defensive player of the year candidate, but you just don't always commit to it. But when he's locked in, I mean, you're right. Look, Steph Curry aside, we've talked about his gravity and, and how much he means to them, Draymond Green, all that stuff. When Kevin Durant is locked in on both ends, I, I don't know that you're wrong and that he's not the best player in the NBA. And I'm, I am not sure how close it is given kind of like LeBron's struggles this year and the injuries and everything like that it's just Durant and I know and, and I know you're sympathetic to my like overall argument because I, I kind of get the sense you feel that way about Harden you know like you defend Harden because you as a basketball coach appreciate how good he is and it gets annoying to you when people dismiss him as a flopper or you know the fact that anyone could do that if they just kind of like wiggled their arms around which I was joking with you about too um so I, I appreciate Harden for that reason but for some reason the, the playing style like based on skill, Harden deserves a title too, or at least a finals appearance or something. I mean, he's been a top three, top five player. I just don't enjoy watching him play. 
Um, I don't enjoy how Houston's been operating as an organization this postseason. We could talk about that. So I do kind of take um, Schadenfreude when they when they lose, and I'm happy they're down 2-0. I don't know if maybe we should be kind of like upset about this or not, but the Warriors holding serve at home and, and winning two games – I don't know how surprising it is. I did think Houston was going to win one. I, I told you that I, I thought that the Rockets were a decent value on BovadaSportsbook.com before the series. But I, I don't know that, like, I think it's very hard to see the Rockets win four of five. Certainly they could win three in Houston. But one of the things I think is going to be really interesting, and I do want to talk about the officiating for a second because I, I want to talk about how Houston handled it because we had some interesting points on that. But one of the things I think is going to be really interesting about Houston is if you do assume that Golden State's going to break up, and, and like I said, it would be next to impossible for them to sign Durant and Thompson long-term again unless one of the two of them takes a massive discount. It, it, I don't think there's any way Durant does. And even Clay, I think they'd be over the luxury tax. I don't have those numbers in front of me. but So if I'm Daryl Morey, I do wonder how he looks at 2019-2020 because it's not like they can get a whole lot better in the draft. They are close to capped out. Tillman Furtada is a nut job and wants the the uh, Rockets to win. He's paid a ton of money. He just shelled out $30 million basically for Kelvin Sampson in Houston to stay there at University of Houston. So, like, maybe they're okay paying the luxury tax. Like, it's possible we're not paying enough attention to Houston as a free agent destination just for next year or the year after because they may be the closest to win a title, even with Paul being a year older. Like, Harden is still going to be in his prime. Like, I, I don't know if maybe we're underrating Houston long-term as somebody – we always talk about the Bucks, the Raptors, the Clippers. We never really talk about Houston next year. And you know that Daryl Morey is getting very, very, like, his hot under his collar about getting James Harden a title, and maybe next year is the best chance for them. That's interesting. I, I do sense – I, I kind of look at it a different way because right now they're, they're maxed out. You know, Chris Paul's making $38 million, $40 million the next year, 44 the year after. That's a terrible contract. It's just going to end up – it's going to be so bad as it ages. And I think that's that was their their big bullet, the big free agent ad. I mean, it was technically a trade, but like it was it was like he wanted to go there, and, and they kind of figured out the way to make it work. Um, they're going to be paying $100 million in the next couple of years. I don't see how they're going to get a free agent unless it is a sign-and-trade situation. You know, somebody like Gordon is, is a good contract for that. Um I think that I think the panic. I think they're panicked because they feel like the window's closing. Actually, I feel the opposite. If you do, I think they had their best chance last year, um, close as you could possibly be. You know, in terms of end results, and now they're down two zero, or they were down one zero, and they probably wanted to win that first close game one, and then they kind of panicked as an organization and they started bitching about the refs. Release, you know, leaked that. <laughs> Report. I don't know if you read the whole thing. It was so ridiculous. The idea that the refs cost them like eighty points in last year's, you know, game seven or something. Did you actually read the report they released? I did read it. I do want to say real quick. I don't. I don't mind their methodology. I did think at the time that they got hosed in game seven. I understand the whole like don't miss twenty seven straight threes. Blah 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 blah. Like I get it. But I, I did think there were a couple for sure legitimate complaints in there. I, I do want to throw it out there that I don't know. I would have preferred that the report didn't leak. I don't mind Houston auditing the officials. I'm sh- I-, I hope other teams do it. That's just being smart, in my opinion, like getting people. I don't know if Houston leaked the report themselves or if the NBA did it because they were like, this is way out of hand. Like, we need people to look at Houston in a certain I, way. I, I know. I, I know. I don't know, but I do know. I mean, it was it, that was the most infuriating part. Was The way they framed it was ESPN has obtained this report. Like, like, what do you think ESPN does any freaking 
research or any sort of legwork on any of these stories. It's just like, hey, we got a call from Daryl Morey, you know, release this report. I don't, I don't know. I don't know that it went that way. To be totally honest with you, I, I, I would, I would say that it, I think there's a reasonable chance that the NBA has had the report that Houston sent the report to the NBA before the series or whatever, and then they started griping. And griping. Well, apparently, it was last year. It was after. It was like months. And ago again, every it. single team can get access to the play-by-play data for their games. You cannot see other people's reports. They will not let you do that. But this is a practice that every other team can engage in. And, and this is the problem with the end of game game one. And we talked about this with the last two minute report. There were clearly going to be fouls, and it just doesn't. It's like it doesn't make any sense. Like at this point, like we don't care that Steph Curry fouled James Harden when Harden went out of bounds. Like we don't care that Clay Thompson traveled. The game is over at that point. Well, that's what, that's why they did it. I mean, like I don't mind people. It's probably smart to complain about the officials because officials are human and they might end up, you know, giving you some makeup calls or, or treating you a little more fair just to act fair. It's the, it's the Phil Jack. It's Phil Jackson. He used to do, he, Phil Jackson did this every playoff run, whether it was the Bulls or the Lakers. As Daryl Morey says, you know, Steve Kerr does it. Every coach and every player does it to some degree. I just didn't like the like disingenuous nature of the idea that they wrote this report to help the officials. Like they released it when they were in one hole, found out that they, you know, were playing a ref, you know, Scott Foster that they don't like. They wanted to cry foul and try to affect the series, um, which is fine. But don't act like it was like an accident or don't act like this was like for the good of the league. It's like a very self-centered move that was trying to affect the series, trying to get a good whistle. And um, I honestly think the players were a little embarrassed by it. Honestly, like Draymond, I, I speculated that. And then Draymond Green said it after the fact, said like, I think the players were a little embarrassing and kind of like bit their tongue a little bit more than they would because they're, their organization is almost like the dad, like jumping out into the soccer field and complaining about his daughter's call. You know, it's like, dad, shut up. Like, let me handle this. You know, I think that's the way it was. And I, I think Maury kind of overstepped um, in, in his role, you know, other teams complain about it, other players complain about it, other coaches complain about it. You don't see a lot of executives bitching publicly. Right. And, it, and I, I texted you at the time. It made total sense that like Daryl Maury, would be the guy tweeting about it. And then Mark Cuban would also be tweeting about it. Like those are the two highest level execs, you know, obviously Cuban owner as well, but like, and those are the guys that try to operate as close as they can on the margins. And I, I, like I said to you, I don't know if I was texting you this, but I I did text one of my friends who was arguing about this. The, The league has created this reality. Okay. Like, they're the ones that protected shooters. Like they're the ones that decided to disallow hand checking to protect perimeter players. Houston has built their team given the rules that the NBA sets out. And I and I don't I don't have a problem with them being upset. Like I said, I, I did think at the time in game seven that they got hosed last year. Like we weren't doing this podcast then. No, I agree. I mean, and game one, you could you could certainly argue they didn't get a lot of good calls. I just don't like it it's it goes deeper than that to me. Like it's a, it's an American culture thing that really bugs me is blame shifting. Um and it's natural and it's human nature. Anything goes wrong, you're like, oh, who can I blame for this? I don't want to take responsibility for myself. Okay, we can blame the refs. You know, it's like if I don't get a job, like say I'm an accountant and I don't get a promotion. Like, oh, my boss hates me. Or I didn't get a good grade. My professor's fault. It's like no one ever takes responsibility. I don't want to get in this sort of like get off my lawn type thing. And it's annoying that like we're talking about the officials because like – this is exactly what you're saying. You like not not you, but just in general, people are saying they don't want to do. Is like we don't want to talk about the refs. Like we want to talk about what happened in the game. But like the problem is we haven't even gotten to game two yet, and we're you know ten minutes in because we're talking about well, and also like to, to the credit of the NBA and the players and the officials, Scott Foster, who you know who whoever he did a good talk, job. He did. A good I mean, job. 
it's unbelievable how big of a storyline an official became. And it's, and it is embarrassing for the league too, that that would become such a focus. Let's talk about that for one second. Obviously the assignments for the NBA, they come the, the first four games, they happen before the series, right? They, they, they know in advance, the teams do not know. Scott Foster hadn't refed a, a Rockets game since February. He obviously had the issue with Harden fouling Harden out of the Lakers game. I believe that happened in January, but I, I don't remember right off the top of my head the date of that game. It was like right after Christmas, if I remember correct. Or it might have been February because it might have been right when LeBron was back. I think that's actually right, February. But hadn't worked the Rockets since then. Golden State also hates Scott Foster, just for the record. Like, the Rockets had lost six straight playoff games that Foster had ref, now seven, like – just don't assign Scott Foster. Like, I'm not saying, like, when, when it came out that he was assigned to this game, like, you cannot take him off. At that point, it's it's over. It's done with. But if you're the fucking NBA, like, don't... No, I disagree. I disagree. Because I, I think that that would, like, enable or encourage people to complain about no, certain reps. No, this is, this, is, this is what I'm saying. Like, you can avoid this problem as a whole without tampering with, like, the integrity of the series. Scott Foster is, for better or worse, like... I think it's very clear that, like, if you go back and look at this, and I encourage everyone who listens to Google Scott Foster, Tim Donaghy. Like, Scott Foster was, like, very clearly complicit in the Tim Donaghy scheme. It's fucking unbelievable he still officiates games. But he's graded out as one of the, like, worst officials in the NBA the last couple of years. Like, Heraldus Valgaris had, like, a ton of info on Scott Foster and how bad he's been in the playoffs and how, how many fouls he calls. So given that you have this ref profile of Scott Foster, this is your marquee series. Both teams don't like him. You know that both teams have guys that can play nonstop. Like you could see this coming way in advance. It doesn't. Game one is totally inconsequential to this. Just don't schedule Scott Foster for this series. There's three other series going on. You can assign him. He can work games given his status as a veteran official. Like this was a bad decision. This was a terrible decision. I, I agree and disagree. I, I agree in the sense like if he's just a bad ref in general, he shouldn't be in a big series. Obviously, I agree with that. I don't think you should allow teams to kind of pick their dance partners. They're not. But my point is they're not, Zan. Like, I'm not saying Houston's calling up and saying don't schedule Scott Foster. I'm saying if I'm the NBA, I make a progressive decision to be like, you know what? This is going to lead to some shit that I don't care about because I want the league to be entertaining. I don't want the story to be officials. So you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to have the foresight to not schedule Scott Foster for the Rockets. I, I, I do think that encourages teams like, say you're Dallas. And say like you do your internal research and you decide that See, you, know, you don't you don't know though is my point. If you're the Rockets, you you have no idea what happened with the process because they don't release like, hey, this is who we were considering assigning. Like that's my point in all this. Like they didn't know Scott Foster was the ref until 24 hours before, but the NBA knew it in advance of the series because they assigned the guy. Well, I agree. I mean, like if if you were trying to avoid a problem, yes. But I mean, if you wanted to be fair. Like, I just don't think you should, like, give me, let me give you a hypothetical. Like, say Dallas does their research on refs, and I think they do, and they decide that ref, you know, Joe Joe gives, like, you know, doesn't call three-second violations for whatever reason. Like, they, that's just not his preference or whatever. And they're playing Utah, and you know, in a series, and they lose the series partly because of that, and they hate this guy, and they think he's a terrible ref, and it doesn't help their play style. And they bitch about it, and they bitch about it, and the league's like, you know what? Let's just avoid the problem. Don't let JoJo ref Dallas games. Like Dallas, like gets their way and gets to pick their refs in a way, just to because the league doesn't want to avoid a problem. Like you can complain about refs and their skills, and everyone should be uniform, but teams shouldn't be allowed to veto refs. You know, if he's a bad ref, he shouldn't be allowed to. In any I, of I, I agree with what you're saying. I, I understand your point here, and my point is. You can literally make a progressive decision in this situation. It doesn't have to be a decision that you make all the time. 
they clearly took Scott. They they would never admit this, but the bottom line is like they clearly took Scott Foster off of Rocket Games. Like it's it doesn't make sense for a guy of his status that like and, and as many national TV games as the Rockets had in the second half of the season that like all of a sudden he's not scheduled to work the Rockets in March. Right. And and James Harden called for that at one point said I don't think he should officiate our games and I have a problem with that. Like I just have a problem with. Um, Unless it's a personal, beef. that's that's what the argument was. Like that's why. Do you think it? You think it was? I, I think it's more of a play style. That's but that's that's fine. And like there there was a big arg- article about how like older refs haven't called landing landing space fouls, you know, as much as younger refs have, and that and then this crew was much more veteran even than the first crew was. But it's like this is what happened with the Spurs and Joey Crawford. Like Joey Crawford just didn't like Tim Duncan for some reason, and like the, the bottom line was like by the end of his career, Joey Crawford was like totally finished anyway. But like. They stopped scheduling Joey Crawford because it, it was a personal thing. And I think that was Harden's argument here. Like, I mean, and Zan, he, here's the thing. Scott Foster calls more fouls in general. I, I remember Bob Volgaris tweeting out something along the lines of like, just wait until you watch a game that Scott Foster refs, pay attention to him. Because in the second half, if he hasn't called a lot of fouls, he'll have like a three to four minute spurt where he calls like six or seven fouls just because it's like, oh man, like I got to do something. And and he had like a bunch of data to back this up. No, and, and I, I think to your point, like, there are smart people like Mark Cuban and, you know, I'm sure Daryl Morey and Volgaris who do track this stuff a lot better than I do. They know every official. They know their tendencies. I mean, it's, it, I mean, the, the bottom line is this may or may not mean something, but like James Harden's fouled out of four games in his career. Three of them, Scott Foster was the crew chief. So like, again, I'm not saying I, I, you, I, I don't know. We don't track officials. Like I know the bigger name officials because they're on TV like all the time in the playoffs and, and they tend to, you know, have a little bit more of a story about them. But I thought Scott Foster did a good job. I, I don't want to talk so much more about the refs. I, I really don't because we've like, no, and, it, and it was great. It was like in terms of the result, like the NBA couldn't have been happier that that was not a storyline. Everyone worked themselves up preparing for this like outrage, and it just never happened. No, and and so like they did a good job. Like my my thing with this series, and again, I I'm not counting the Rockets out. They they are very very good. I, I don't have any idea. I'm sure the odds, their odds on Bovada are a little bit worse than they were before. Like. Maybe if they were, I don't even know if you have it up, but like maybe if they were. Like, yeah, I do. I, I was interested because it's, um, we can talk more about specifics game two, but just in terms of betting, like you'd expect the Rockets to come out strong and they're only minus three and a half. Yeah. Um, all the games are pretty close. You know, now these are the underdogs taking home court advantage. So all the odds are pretty low across the board. Um, but three and a half, you know, they're expecting a tight game, but Houston is still the favorite for game two, three, and I would expect game four. Right. So. so I don't know if the league still expects this to go seven. I, I don't I, I don't tend to think it will. Like I said, I was a big Rockets and six guy that that is I, I would I, I think the odds would be like I think Bovada would have it as like plus a hundred thousand for the Rockets. Maybe not plus a hundred thousand, but like maybe like plus like five thousand or ten thousand to win uh four games in a row. I, I don't envision that happening. Obviously they dodged a little bit of a bullet because you know, the James Harden injury, a little bit scary. Like, he gets poked in the eye. It was it was hard to see on the first angle, you know, and, and we were kind of like, oh, man, Harden flopped. And then, like, you saw it, and he did get poked in the eye pretty good. Very clear that his eye was bleeding. I, I know he had, like, a cut cornea on his left eyelid or whatever. So, but they don't expect that to be a problem for game three. Do you what, – what do you think Houston needs to do? I, I think – Well, I have some thoughts. Like, I – and I agree. Like, I, I had the exact same reaction to you. Like, when he first fell, I thought it was a flop because it's like the boy who cried wolf. And then um, and then it looked legit. And, and I'll take it a step further. Like, if, you know, people don't like Harden. 
I'm one of them. I just talked about how I don't like his. Yeah, you, know, you texted me. You texted me that he was just throwing his body on the ground when that happened, and I was like, I think he got poked. <laughs> I think he got poked in the eye. But the first angle they showed us, like the overhead view, you you really couldn't see it. It looked like Draymond's hand just like brushed across his face. Total bang bang play, like just just unfortunate, you know? Right, and and I don't like our that caveat. I will say this though, as a logical person, if LeBron or Michael Jordan or whoever people like got poked in the eye, left the game, came back with a wonky eye that was visibly inflamed and scored 29 points and almost came back and won the game that would have been like a legendary performance i don't think he gets enough credit for coming back and playing he played really well. he played pretty well yeah in the third and fourth quarter he, he played all right I, I wouldn't say he played great but i mean you know he had probably better than game one um i, I would say this though you know the final score six points they got it to within three i think right yeah it was and it, i mean it was four they had the they had the ball down four but that said i think this game more than any other game in recent memory of the Warriors, they felt much more in control of this game, from my opinion. Like I agree. They, like, they just completely controlled the game. Um, they came out with such good energy defensively to start, um, just kind of set the pace. And it I, I felt like they, they didn't – it wasn't a competitive game, really. Even if it got down to three, you thought maybe they'll chug, no, they're going to come back and win. I, I just think they handled the business, and it did make me think, like, this small ball lineup, we've been talking about it, if there's no, you know, holes in the Death Star, there's no, like, boogie to attack, Warriors are really fucking good. Like, I don't know how you beat them. Yeah, I, I think we underestimated two things. Uh, the one is the Andre Iguodala injury last year, and, and we mentioned that early. Like, how's he going to respond? Is he going to be able to play a lot of minutes? Like, where this guy goes to the Fountain of Youth, Suzanne, I have no idea because you're exactly right. Yes, has he lost a step? For sure. But is he able to be that same kind of like game-breaking defender, like very integral cog in their offense without, you know, having to have the ball a ton? Yeah, man, he's tremendous. Like, yeah, and, and I want to talk about that too because I when they, he signed that contract, he kind of got overpaid. You know, like the big like sixteen million dollar contract. I thought it was a terrible move by the Warriors. A kind of a not a panic move, but just like negotiating from a position of weakness. Man, his his thought process and his like ability to be like, you know what, I'll be the sixth man because this team can be better. Like he's been other than Steph Curry's like four year, forty million dollar deal or whatever. That's the other biggest thing that's happened to allow the Warriors to be this good. It's Dre, is Steph Curry or is uh, Andre Iguodala being like, you know what, I'll take a back seat, play Draymond. Like let's do this seriously. Well, he he should. He's 35 now. But like when they signed the contract, like, I'm looking at his like minutes. Like it was such a clear decline. He had played 40 minutes a game, then 39, then 37, 35, 34, 32, 30, 27. It was clear like it, in my head, he had like a year left, maybe a year and a half left. And here he is defensively. He might, as you said, he might have lost a step, but I can't really see it defensively. He's playing um, extremely well. And, you know, a perfect guy to guard like a LeBron or a Harden. And also because he's such a respected vet with such a good reputation, he could get away with a little bit more. He's not going to get called for a ton of fouls. Um, he's been key for them. As you said, like them being able to play that small ball lineup really does make the difference in like them being a great team to being like, a historically great team. I agree with that. I also think that, that Draymond Green has been through two games exactly the guy that you need him. I don't know if like the toe injury, he's finally healthy. I don't know if he's just finally shut his mouth and he's like, we're going to win the title and then go off onto our you know own paths. But he's been unbelievable, Zan. I, I think he said he said he lost like twenty pounds too, like to get in shape for the playoffs. That's that's great. Like how, like I don't understand this whole like play yourself into shape throughout the season type of deal. But people do it. People do it. But he is. He has absolutely been a game breaker. And then the other thing has just been like Durant, again, 
you know, Thompson and Curry have, I think, both been a little bit worse than we'd expect. Thompson clearly kind of getting over the ankle injury. Curry dislocates his finger. I think it bothered him shooting the ball on uh, Tuesday night. But again, I would expect that we'll see Curry be fine. Hopefully that finger injury doesn't linger. The one thing about the Warriors, and this is this is no knock on the Rockets. Clearly the Rockets, I think, I, I would say at this point, it's, it's pretty clear the Rockets are the second best team in the NBA. I'm not sure if they would beat Boston, Toronto, Milwaukee, whoever it is in the finals. I think they probably would, but I think it'd be a good series. But Houston, it sucks, man. Like, you're just running into this team that, again, four future Hall of Famers. Andre Iguodala is probably going to garner some mention for the Hall of Fame, probably not get in, but a, but a great player. I think I think he will now. If he wins another title, I think he'll get in based on just – Four titles, a bunch of all-defensive first teams. Like, he, But it's just like at, at some point you, you kind of just tip your cap and you're like, man, there's no way to stop these guys and we just have to get super hot from three over in a sustained sample. And it's not been shown that it can be done. And, and again, like I said, maybe Milwaukee, they're young and hungry. Brogdon comes back. They're good enough to do it. Maybe Boston's switchy enough, but – one of the problems with Houston, and everyone's bitching about Trevor Ariza, like, look, Daryl Morey, sure, would Trevor Ariza have been good with the Rockets? Maybe. But there's no evidence to see that Daryl Morey, that, that Daryl Morey didn't make the right decision. Yes, did he need a guy to replace Trevor Ariza? Sure. But Ariza was terrible this year. He took $15 million on a bad team. Like, it's just the bottom line is, like, Trevor Ariza is not the problem. But you do need to be a little bit more switchy. Like, Daniel House has been very bad. Like, Clint Capella... I honestly thought that he was going to be one of the bigger X factors in this series. And he had an okay game in game two, but he was terrible in game one. Tucker's been good, I think, but I don't know. I don't know what the Rockets can do. They played Kenneth Reed. Like Austin Rivers kept him in the game in game two and Austin Rivers stinks. <laughs> um, I agree. Like from a basketball perspective, in terms of like, I think they thought James Ennis would be that guy. Remember like he was probably the more impactful signing than Carmelo earlier in the year. It felt like, 10 years ago when they had Carmelo Anthony on the team. But. I, really, I really wish, in hindsight, I really wish they hadn't tried the Mellow experiment and they had tried to get another like younger wing in to plug in. Right, maybe, like try James Ennis and somebody else like yeah. that and maybe one of them works. I, I think like that's the that's the thing that really, if you ask what mistakes Maury made, that's probably the one. Like the thinking he could fit Carmelo into a role because of Chris Paul and Harden, it just didn't work. Well, I, after game one, I had some thoughts and I – I think I'll, I'll just throw it out there. I think Mike D'Antoni's listening to the podcast because they did make some adjustments that I thought were important. Um, for one is the idea of like, I think we mentioned like they just didn't shoot corner threes at all in game one. And like that, that's the kind of shot that PJ Tucker, who's an okay shooter, not a good shooter needs. And they gave him some, he hit three of five. Like that's what they need to hit. Those are the shots that he can hit and he can feel comfortable shooting. And then also I mentioned this and that, you not everyone agreed, but I, I saw I saw it play out again. When Harden's driving, he's he tends to look to the lob, and the Warriors and the Jazz have been playing that and making Capella very ineffective. Like that's how Capella scores. Um, there were a couple times in the second half, if you go back and watch the tape, where Harden drives and, and to the basket to score on his own, and almost has like a free lane. There was two plays in a row where he just drives minimal resistance and gets a layup. Um, because I think they're playing him to pass. So I think Harden, if he keeps attacking with the eye to score more and then make adjust, if they, if they start coming over, then you start kicking it to Capella. He can't look to Capella as his first instinct because they're playing that. And Capella has been really poor as a result. I mean, relatively. Yeah, 10 assists in two games for Harden. Did not expect that to be the case. I did expect the pace to slow, and I did expect, you know, I wasn't expecting him to throw up like 35, 15, and 10 on a regular basis because this series does just by nature end up to being a little bit more ISO heavy as we've seen in the past. 
I am a little bit concerned. Like the Warriors are taking away kind of him driving the lane and throwing corner threes, like you said. I am a bit concerned that Harden's conditioning is I hate to use this argument. He he plays such a heavy load. He uses a ton of possessions. Like, I don't think his conditioning is bad. I am a little worried. He did it twice in the second half late where he tried to force a pass to the corner that just wasn't there. So the turnovers, I think, are more of an issue. I think you're right on that. He, his decision-making needs to be better. I am expecting, just, just to be clear, I am expecting the Rockets to come out and shoot the ball well in Game 3. I, I just think they will. Yeah, it, I it's home court, like – whether or not they lose game three or lose game four, I would expect probably Golden State wins this in six, but maybe seven, maybe, I mean, maybe Houston's home court, we're underrating a little bit. It just doesn't seem to matter as much. Like, Well, no, they'll, they'll have a hot game, and that's why I look at that Bovada bit, because it's like, you know, when Oklahoma City was was clunking all these threes, and they're a bad shooting team, I'm like, there's going to be a game where Terrence Ferguson hits like four threes, just by nature of, you know, being an NBA player. And, and he did have one of those games. Um I, from Houston's point of view, I do worry about the size issue. Like they play three guards, you know, Eric Gordon's like, I guess they're small forward. Um, and, and then they bring in, you know, Rivers is the primary backup. So it's just a small team. And, and the Warriors took advantage of that with a lot of offensive rebounds. They had 18. So I, I wonder from Houston's point of view, do you play more Gerald Green? I don't know. House? I mean, just a little more size and hope they can hit their I don't threes. understand why Gary Clark can't play. Like I, 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 here's the thing. At this point, I don't think if you're Mike D'Antoni that you can try anything that would be like an abject failure, right? Because like, it's not like Farid's been great. Nene, like you played him too much in in game one, even if that was 30 seconds too much. So it's like, I don't know what else you can do, but I I do feel like, look, like just throw Gary Clark in the mix, like see what he can give you because, you know, you need a little bit more, but it was bad. Like just not for nothing, but like they put Jarebko in the game and he immediately you know, he just immediately gets a weak side tip dunk. Like, that just that shit just can't happen. Like, you can't have Jonas Jerebko stealing points from you. Because it's like, you, you just have to be on top of that. And I do think Houston has made some of those mistakes this series that have come back to bite them. Because, again, the, the, I mean, the point differential through two games, whether or not we think that, like, Houston had a chance in game two or not, there it's only a 10-point differential. Like, that's well within the margin of, like, I mean, now, right? Well, and also, I thought it was interesting. I, I mentioned this, like... The point differential is what five. Last year's series was nine. Like the Warriors actually blew out a lot of games last year. Um, they were plus nine. Didn't on they the win one by like forty? Yeah, I mean they won a game by like. Yeah, they won by by forty. And I also one last thing about the series in terms of adjustments. Like I we said in the last podcast, the story was joking. They might be listening. Like Nene is just not playable. Um, he went down to four minutes, and I've heard some people say. You know, Capella's not playing well. Put in Nene, put in Fareed. Like, I just don't agree with that. Like, I think those guys would get roasted. I think Capella... He has to play. Yeah, he has to. It's just the bottom line. Speaking of, uh, we'll take a quick break. And you know why, Zan? Because if I was to go to a basketball game, I'd probably wear my favorite pair of jeans. I think especially in the Bay Area where I don't know what the weather's like. And that's a pair that fits me perfectly and always looks great. I wear it out to basketball games. I'll wear it at home on the couch. I'll wear it at work, which is also the couch. You know, wherever, they're the go-to, and I don't underestimate their importance. And no one knows this better than Wrangler, the authority on jeans using their expertise in comfort and durability. Wrangler jeans are made for the adventurers, the go-getters, folks that skateboard, folks who like to keep moving, whether you ride a bike or a Bronco, or if you're just the type that walks the earth in search of something, they're the jeans for you. Classic or modern styles with a range of fits at a price that works for you. They also have vintage re-releases. Wrangler has something for everyone. Visit Wrangler.com and check out their great selection of jeans, shirts, pants, outerwear, all for men and women. New styles with great fits. Wrangler. Real 
comfortable jeans. Well, you're probably wondering if you're listening to that, like, how do you, you know, I want to buy Wranglers. I want to buy some for my family and friends and maybe send some to Tyler because he loves Wranglers so much. But like, how do you pay for it? And it's easy. Yahoo Daily Sports. Betting. Do we call it betting or not? <laughs> I don't know. It's skill, really. And, you and you know, you've been listening to these podcasts. You've been watching, you know, basketball, baseball, football. you got to use that knowledge to some way to make some money for yourself. And since, you know, baseball's back, there's games all the time. Yahoo Daily Fantasy brings you closer to the game that you love and offers you know, single-day contests, week-long contests. You can pick a team, get started at yahoo.com backslash daily fantasy and find a contest that's right for you. So you could do you know a big league or you could do a 50-50 contest where you know half the league wins or you could do a quick match where they'll pair you with somebody at the same skill level um, so you're not playing the guy you know from Jeopardy. Um, who was a sports better as well, you know, it, it's skill wise, you know, it's, it's become like poker. It's not a game of gambling. It's a game of skill. So if you use promo code POD 25, you get $25 in free play when you make your first deposit. And the sooner you get playing, the sooner you can get winning and get those Wrangler jeans about the price of it. $25, $50. There you go. You got your new self, new Wrangler. Thanks to Yahoo daily fantasy. Transitioning over to the Eastern conference real quick. Speaking of point differential, Boston blows out Milwaukee by 22 in Game 1, and then Milwaukee blows out Boston by 21 in Game 2. So that is at Boston plus 1 on the point differential. But for people that were panicking about the Bucks, obviously the Bucks go on a 24-2 run in the third quarter of Game 2, really take control, uh, made a ton of shots just after not making shots in Game 1, and looked like the team that, that kind of I thought they were going to be. But I, I do want to caution real quick, I do want to caution people on thinking that Boston is totally done or that like like this series is going back to Boston and game three is incredibly important. Milwaukee has to win a game in Boston. I, I think that's just the bottom line. I, I don't see any reason why they won't, but I also do not think that we're going to see Kyrie Irving play as bad as he played in game. I mean, he was just awful, like four for 18, one for five from three, three turnovers, just wasn't able to get guys involved, scored nine points. I mean, that was the biggest thing for me is like they needed somebody to be able to score and Kyrie just had eight absolutely terrible game. One of the worst games I've ever seen him play, Zan. And I think that was the big difference. Yeah, and this has been like the most, like Golden State, you know, we've seen the Golden State-Houston matchup. We kind of have a good feel for it. I think, at least I think we do. Um, this one kind of threw us for a loop, you know, Boston coming out so strong. And then maybe Milwaukee snapping back was more predictable. But still, I don't know where to go from there. Because I agree with you. I don't think it was just like, hey, Milwaukee had a wake-up call. Now they're going to steamroll. Um, I tend to agree with you in the sense that they got really hot. They should hit 23s. And Kyrie Irving was really cold. So I don't think that game two was as close as the 21-point spread. I think this is a series. I think Boston you know, has the size and, and Horford to match up with Giannis pretty well. Um, you know, Giannis had a pretty good game, 29-9, but he didn't dom control the entire game. You know, he only had four assists, got to the line a ton. But um, I think it's going to be competitive. I think they're going to – I agree. I think Boston's going to win at least one of these games. Um, and if they win game three, maybe it'll feel like they're more in control of the series. They're minus two on Bovada. I, I don't necessarily bet that, but I don't think Milwaukee's just going to come in there, grab two games, and get out of there. So we have gotten some intel that Malcolm Brogdon may play in Game 3. That is incredibly important. Whether or not he's ready to go, we don't know. I mean, coming back from a meniscus injury or whatever, MCL, it's going to be tough for him to have some his timing down. But it is better than Pat Connington, who it feels like Boston targets every time down the floor. One of the other things, Chris Middleton was tremendous, makes seven threes. But yeah, talk about a guy, a free agent to be, right? cashing out right there. He's, you know... 
if if you don't have the talent of daily fantasy, you could you know hit seven threes in the playoffs and get paid too. I I would say that it's pretty. I don't think there's any way Milwaukee lets them walk in, unless they're really up against it with the luxury tax or something. I mean, and they're not. Their cap sheet is okay, but I mean, this is this is this is what I think is really interesting about team building. This Milwaukee team with their current core. Obviously, Brook Lopez is a little bit older, but. You have Giannis in his prime. He's going to get a Supermax, no question about it. You have Chris Middleton, who's very clearly in his prime. You have Malcolm Brogdon, who's, you know, 50-40-90 guy, 15 points, 5 assists, whatever. You, you need to re-sign him, too. You have Eric Bledsoe, who you already re-signed. They, they have to go for it. And I don't know what their owner's wealth situation is like. I, I just assume every owner's a billionaire, and they should be okay paying the luxury tax. However, luxury tax penalties and repeater taxes is, is very difficult. And that's one of the reasons that Golden State's just not going to be able to re-sign Durant. There's all this like, hey, Durant's leaving type deal, but like they just can't do it. It's, it's not realistic. Milwaukee, let's say you lose in the finals this year or Boston beats you. That, then you get another year, you get older, you learn a little bit, you, you draft a little bit better, whatever. This team needs to stay together. They, they have to do it. They kind of got robbed a little bit with Brogdon getting hurt this year. That could end up being an X factor. But they need to sign Middleton. So, I mean, I don't know what they have to give him, $25 million, $30 million, and it's going to look bad. Maybe it looks like a little bit of a better version than Otto Porter. But if Giannis says, like, I need to play with that guy, you have to figure out a way to re-sign him, Zan. He's too important to what they do. Well, I agree, I agree in the sense, like, I think Middleton is, is indispensable. Agre- yeah, that, that's, a, that's a great word for it, indispensable, on this Milwaukee right. team. I, but I think I don't necessarily think they'll sign everybody. And I think Brogdon, who's been hurt and is also a free agent, um, that's the the real question mark. Like, I don't know if they view him the same way. I think he's good. You know, he shot really well this year. Uh, he's not an excellent defender. He has size, but can you pay Malcolm Brogdon four years fifty million instead of four years sixty five million, which someone else might offer him? He is a restricted free agent, no? right? I think he'll get a big contract offer. I think he'll get like a four year sixty million. But maybe you can convince him this is a perfect situation for you. You know, as a starting point guard, maybe that's not like you know as a traditional point guard, maybe that's not your best role. And I will say this: I don't ever really, I don't love taking stock into like what people say about players as like human beings a lot and let me explain that before i just say i view everyone as an asset just malcolm brogdon's a little bit older you know went to virginia he's very smart he's a well-spoken guy he may value staying in milwaukee and what that means for him long term rather than 15 million or 20 million extra dollars just just because of who he is and i don't know that that's right and i don't know anything about malcolm brogdon as an individual other than what i read and what people have told me i I agree like if if it's a matter of like four years 60 million in phoenix which seems like a shit show or four years 50 million to stay in milwaukee a title contending team yeah he i could see him being the guy that says you know what like i'll take a little bit of a hometown discount because I, i love these guys like they're my brothers like and again, you know, if you're Brogdon, maybe you take a bridge deal. Like maybe you take, maybe you get two years, thirty-five million from the Bucks or something, and then you do win a title, and then you get paid one more giant contract where somebody gives you a hundred million. Now, I don't expect that to be the case because I just no, I don't. I, I think he's kind of maxed out in terms of his value. Like he just had that fifty, forty, ninety year. He's now twenty-six, so I don't. I think this is probably the peak of his like bargaining power. You know, the fact that he's restricted kind of hurts it a little bit. And to the point about the ownership. I think they'll pay, you know, to dip over the luxury tax. Like this is not, you know, Milwaukee Bucks. It's not like the guy who owned a general store from Milwaukee and ended up buying the team when he was, you know, in the 1950s. Like this is a billionaire hedge fund owner, Mark Lasley, who, who just recently bought the team. And, and I think he um, is willing to pay. So for that. on the Bucks cap sheet, 
obviously next year. Middleton, you know, is an interesting one just because it's a uh, just because it's a player option, but he's obviously not picking it up. Like he he has to opt out. He's Middleton's going to get a hundred million dollars from somebody. I hope it's the Bucks, but they do have. They do have George Hill for some like very odd reason at a, a, a very large cap number, and then they do have Tony Snell for like eleven million. So maybe you know maybe you move Tony Snell, and that's how you end up with Brogdon. Well, and and I think Hill's contract's like partially guaranteed, so they could like cut it. I think that like over half of it is, is negotiable. But forget that. Like, if you're, is there any adjustments as a coach for the rest of the series? We're only you know, it's one one going into game three. Is there anything Boston should be doing differently, or it's just a matter of like let's hope the shooting numbers change? I mean, I guess you, you just really hope that Giannis doesn't figure it out. Like they're they're playing three guys in the paint. They're just building a wall and being like, let somebody else beat us. And and Milwaukee was able to do that in the second round. I think offensively, one one of the things that just has to stop if I'm Boston, and this is a hard conversation to have with a player, but like Jason Tatum, like you're just you're just not an ISO guy. Like they need to stop throwing the ball to Jason Tatum on the wing and like setting him a screen and being like, hey, here's 12 seconds of offense. He was the worst ISO player in the NBA this year. Like I get that he trains with Kobe Bryant. I understand what he thinks he is. They need to they need to get back to kind of like zipping the ball around and, and letting guys make quick decisions and quick cuts because. One of the things with Milwaukee is like, yes, they do play, you know, Marotic and they do play Brooke Lopez, who are not great defenders, but they do have a lot of size and length. And, and it'll only get better once Brogdon comes back because he is a fine scheme defender, like schematically for what they do. I think they need to focus a little bit more on, on moving the ball around and making quick decisions rather than ISOing with everybody other than Kyrie. I, I don't think you can really argue with what Kyrie's skill set and ability is. And then again, they're going to regress to the mean a little bit, but. You know, unfortunately, the, the the cliff for them was in the third quarter where they missed like 16 straight shots. And if you do that, like every team in the NBA is going to beat you. Right. And and we talked about this, you know, Gordon Hayward, I think, is still a little bit of a lingering to be determined. Like he, he started to get hot late in the year. But the question mark was like, how's he going to perform against elite teams? You know, when people step up. Uh, not well in game two. He, he had five points in 31 minutes, zero rebounds in 31 minutes, plus minus of negative 30. I don't know. It could just be circumstantial as you, you hate those, you know, in game, one game plus minus. But um, he, you know, you, you wonder when Marcus Smart comes back, like, does that squeeze out Hayward? How are they going to affect the rotation? Rozier was active. I mean, I, I never really like him, but he, you know, he, yeah, he did a lot. Um, so I think Brad Stevens is going to have to figure out his rotation going forward. Um, Cause you know, if Marcus Smart comes back, you're going to play him at least 20 minutes. So like, where does that come from? I still like limiting, I still like limiting Gordon Hayward's minutes. I, Rozier, a little bit of an issue because like in the third quarter when the Bucks are going crazy, then Rozier's the one trying to get you back in the game and he ends up shooting two for 10. But again, Terry, you know, Boston tends to fall in love. Terry Rozier's kind of like, don't you think he's like an Austin Rivers? Like it's like, you never know what you're going to get. It's like a gremlin in your house. It's like, you know, he could go crazy and score 20 points, but he could have five turnovers and shoot you out of the game. So it's like, those kind of guys always scare me. They're kind of good to have off the bench if you're, you know, in the right circumstance, but relying on them for 25 minutes a night is a little dangerous. if i had to pick one of the two like if i had to pick rosier or marcus smart to be my backup point guard I, I would pick marcus smart and the only reason i say this is because one world-class irritant terry also very irritating to other players too but like smart if he's not scoring he really just takes open threes and whether or not that's a good shot at, or, or not like marcus smart is actually like he was a point guard his whole career and obviously in, in boston it's kind of an awkward fit now you have you have Kyrie, who's a super high usage guy, and then you have Rozier, who's also a, a smaller non-scoring point guard. I'd rather have the size with Marcus Smart and also a guy who can be my secondary playmaker on a, on a second unit, whereas I just don't... Rozier has always more just kind of been like a 
like a lead guard, if you will. And like, he's just a bulldog. Like he'll, he'll guard you. He'll, he'll like wolf at you. Like he'll try to score whatever. I'd rather have Marcus Smart. Cause I think he knows his role a little bit better, if that makes sense, but they're not going to limit Terry Rozier's minutes. Like what they, I mean, the team clearly thinks that what he does is very important. The, the, the issue to me is, like I said, I, I do feel very strongly about like, I mean, Jason Tatum only 25 minutes. Like, I, I don't know. You, you have to probably allocate your, your wing minutes correctly. And I don't know that Stevens did that in game two, but I also think that once the ball started rolling downhill, it's just kind of like, oh shit, like this is really, really bad. So I'd want to play Jalen Brown just because of the defensive ability, but I don't know what to do. Like the Hayward Tatum thing, if neither of those guys are playing well, like the cliff for Boston is really steep. It's interesting, like, I, I, you know, we've talked about Marcus Smart's absence maybe a blessing in disguise because I think it does give him more size and more offensive ability. I, Brian Stevens kind of falls into that, what Houston does at times, where you kind of go too small and you overplay your guard. So if Marcus Smart comes back and Rozier comes back, he and he has the tendency to play, like, three guards together. Um, and I think that really hurt them in the past. You know, like, I, I remember seeing a stat when Isaiah Thomas was on the team and he kind of throws off the curve. But they used to play him – Avery Bradley and Marcus Smart together a lot. And like as a team, their size, I think they averaged under 6'5 as a team when the league average is 6'7. And this is across five positions. Even if you factor out Isaiah Thomas, they're still like an inch shorter than the average team. And and that might not sound like much, but it is in sports. That's a big difference. And um, against a big team like Milwaukee, it's especially a big difference. So I, I think their best chance is to stay kind of big if possible, um, try to use that size to bother. Giannis so I just I didn't don't know suddenly there's a team that sounded like they had such great depth I don't know who's reliable at that spot if it's not Hayward one of the things that's very interesting with Boston and then we'll get to the other the, the other the, the Raptors Sixers was actually very interesting in terms of like a chess match and we'll get there in a second but one of the things that's very interesting with Boston is their collection of players is very talented there's no question about it their collection of personalities is very like unique to say the least you you have a guy like Kyrie who's won a title he's been the you know he's made the biggest shot in the world and, and then you have like Jason Tatum who's this future star in his own mind and in everyone else's mind you have Jalen Brown who's supposedly this super you know this great key cog great team guy you have Gordon Hayward who played in college with Brad Stevens and and was a star before a devastating injury you have Al Horford just like a quiet guy who just does what he wants to do you have Marcus Morris who wants to yell and scream Terry Rozier Marcus Smart same deal I think sometimes Boston really struggles to find their identity when things don't go well. And my, my my curiosity with Brad Stevens is like, what do you what do you do in the locker room if Milwaukee has another game where they make shots and you have another game where a bunch of guys don't shoot it well? What do you do? Like, do you make it simpler? Do you say like, hey, we're running this through Kyrie? Does that does that bother you? Because it does feel like, and this is this is one thing that we thought maybe the Warriors were doing. It, it sort of has shaken itself out just because their talent is even even way greater. But it was kind of like, all right, does Durant get the ball for two possessions? Then do you give it to Steph? Then do you give it to Clay? And I think Boston actually has that type of mindset where it's like they should probably just run their offense through Horford, kind of like Jokic light a little bit, if you will. But they just don't. Like sometimes it's like Kyrie's like, all right, this is my possession. And then they throw it to Jason Tatum and he's like, this is my possession. And then the, Terry Rozier has a possession. It's like it's it's very odd for because Brad is supposed to be this great locker room guy, this great culture guy. And it doesn't feel like Boston's culture is great from the outside looking in especially when things go bad and maybe that's just the nature of all NBA teams and I'm just looking too hard into it but no it is interesting now and Kyrie as he Kyrie kind of has that mentality where it's like and he's been used to it playing with LeBron where it's like okay LeBron's gonna run the show now I'm gonna have my five minutes of spotlight and go crazy and look great um 
And Kyrie's such an interesting guy because, like, I think aesthetically, we talk about James Harden to me not being pleasing to watch because he tries to draw so much contact. Um, Kyrie's the complete opposite in the sense that he's really fun to watch because because he never gets to the line, and and he literally he has not gotten to the line in the series zero for zero zero for zero. Um, so as a fan, that's great. I hate slowing down the game with free throws. As if I'm a GM. That's not something I love because it does make you, you know, so variant. Like, you know, he has a great game. He has a terrible game. And if you don't have LeBron to bail you out, those are noticeable. Like if he's the lead star of your team, he can't go have a bad game and have the team win. It's just not possible. And he's kind of has that pressure now. Um, It's a team that's talented, but it's not more talented than Milwaukee. So he really needs to play extremely well in this game three. He gets a tough whistle sometimes just because he makes so many crazy layups. I think referees are like, ah, he got bumped. It's not a huge deal because he can make it. Whereas like, with Harden, you know, when he gets bumped. Well, it's almost like Kyrie, like, twists his way out of contact almost. You know, like, it's weird. Um, and it is fun. I mean, his finishing is amazing. But, like, um, I don't know. Uh, you know, we'll I, I would prefer that he figured out a way. Like, he goes 4 for 18 the other night and scores 9 points. Like, I would prefer you go 4 for 18 and score 15 because you went 6 for 6 from the foul line. Like, obviously. But, like, if you're looking at, if you're looking at this game on, like, Bovada or whatever else – I'm surprised Boston's favored minus two. Like, and I expect them to win a game. I don't know if they're the favorites in either game. I think Milwaukee's still a notch better. So um, maybe you're not going to make a ton of money by betting Milwaukee twice. But if you do, I, I bet you win one of those I, I'm pretty disappointed. Just just as an aside for everything that's happened in the playoffs, like very, dis- very disappointed in like kind of the Houston Golden State series to begin with just because it's been pretty sloppy. Like, yes, the games have ended up close, but like it, it's not been a great played series so far. But I think the most disappointing thing is watching Golden State now and, and realizing, like what I said before is like I thought Milwaukee would beat them in the finals. And a lot of that was because I thought Golden State was just kind of finished playing with each other. And maybe they won't care as much about Milwaukee as they do care about Houston. Like that that could certainly be the case. But in the games one and two against Houston, watching the Hamptons five lineup play together, it's very clear that nobody in the NBA is close to as good as those five guys playing their best. And that's the disappointing thing about Milwaukee is like you're seeing that they have a little bit more of an up and down thing than Golden State does. And and so my hope is maybe Golden State doesn't care. And I had someone text me about the 04 Lakers, how like everyone thought they were unbeatable. And then all of a sudden they just got beat. And it was totally surprising. So maybe that happens to Golden State. But I will I will, will caution on that because like Carl Malone was done coming off an injury. Gary Payton, an older guy, like – this is legitimately for actual two two of the best five players in the world. Clay Thompson, like I said, one of the more valuable guys in the NBA, and Draymond Green in their primes, like hungry to prove guys wrong because they got yelled at in game in the first series. I don't think that the parallels are that similar. No, well, and I would say this too, like not to backtrack into Golden State too much, but I wrote a long piece about how Golden State, it's not that they're worse, it's that the league has gotten a lot better. And I think that's true. Like the stats about the league shooting and, and is really astounding how many more threes they're taking. Points per game's gone up 10 per game in the last five years. But um, the Warriors still do have this other level. And I don't think it's totally effort related. The, the idea is like, we'll flip the switch, we'll flip the switch. It's also, we'll flip the lineup. As we mentioned before, like we'll play Iguodala 35 minutes as opposed to 25. And that, that is a big difference for the way they play. So they do have like um, a tangible difference aside from just like the effort as well. And they figured it out from a lineup standpoint too. I, I don't want to say figured it out because there are always things you can do. But they figured out that like you can play Sean Livingston less. Like he can play 11 minutes as Iguodala light and that's okay. Like you can play Andrew Bogut five minutes and that's okay. Like Steve Kerr for – 
all the issues I've had with how he's run his team, he has very simply just been like, I'm rolling with my best five guys the, the, the longest I can. And that's what I've always wanted him to do. So I, I think that they're doing a good job with that. Like they have a bunch of dudes that are playing 10 minutes a night and they're contributing. Like we, we joked around about like, oh no, is it time for Quinn Cook? And they never, I don't, I don't think Quinn Cook played Zan in game two, did he? Well, I don't, I don't want to, let's move on. You, you fell back into the Warriors rabbit hole. And I think I understand that because that is the marquee series, but there's two other series we haven't talked about. I don't care at all about, I don't care at all about Portland and Denver. I, I got to be honest with you. Like you said, that, that one is clearly the fourth to me, but Philly. Well, can I say one thing to give credit to Portland and Denver? I'll get, you did say this, like we were going to record before the game and we say, and you gave them the respect and said, let's, let's wait, let's record in the morning. Cause we want to see how that game plays out. Um, good series. One, one, you know, both stars are, are great, but again, it is the fourth series in terms of interest. So let's move, talk about number two or three instead. Philadelphia. Well, I, I, I mean, one thing really quick about Denver, I said this to you before we started recording, this is the second game of the playoffs that we've seen them just totally not make any shots. They had 35 points in the first in the first half, like or 37 points in the first half. I think it was 35. Yeah, the shooting was terrible. They didn't have a single player shoot 50% from the field, like every single one. Um, well, I, I want to ask you one question. Well, to lose a home game when Damian Lillard scores 14 points, as good as he's been, like inex- inexcusable. If Portland wins this series, like you can look at game two and be like, yeah, they missed shots they should make and their expected field goal percentage should have been much higher than it was. doesn't matter. You can't do that. You can't lay an egg at home like that. Real, really disappointing for Denver. Well, I just want to ask one question about that because they kind of like Portland and Denver are kind of who we thought they were. You know, they're both good teams, similar match. It could should be a long series. One thing about Jokic that I just wanted to ask you, as a basketball lifer, is he the best passing center you've ever seen? Or is there anyone else who comes to mind that you think is like in his league? Because I mean, the, his vision is really. Uh, I've never seen like a lot of older guys will always talk about Sabonis, uh, Arvidas Sabonis before he came to the U.S. Like Portland, Arvidas Sabonis, the guy was old, like he had a ton of injuries, still was the best big man passer at, at that point in the league. But I, I would say like that's the one name that I hear a lot. But I never saw him when he played for Yugoslavia, except in like 30 for 30s and stuff when he looked amazing. But it's not a full sample size. I would say Vladi Divac is the other guy that really does come to mind. I mean, he was a tremendous passer from from all over the floor. Other than that, I mean, I guess we're not including LeBron just because. No. Well, I, I think also like the game has changed in the sense that um, I think Vladi Divac was a great passer. It's just they didn't run the offense through him. him that yeah, I mean, and sometimes they did, but you run, you know, you ran it through Vladi in the in the like in the low post. You know, not necessarily the high post because like Tim Duncan to me was a, a great passer, but he had the ball at the elbow and in the low post all the time, like. Like freaking Jokic is like in the slot. Kenny Smith made this comment on Inside the NBA that like he he plays like where a two guard would play, and that's very awkward for bigs. But he can make every pass, and like he has such amazing touch. Like he knows exactly where to put the ball. I would say it's not close that he's the best big passer in the NBA now, and probably at least of the last ten years. Right. I, I couldn't think of anyone else. Like I, you know, there are good passers, but. The one guy that comes to mind, I never saw, of course, but Bill Walton had a good reputation as a passer. And I'm looking at his stats. He had about four or five assists in an era where big guys were not, you know, passing it's, as often. It's just um, that, like, Mike Malone has just realized, and again, this was an argument a couple years ago, like, should we run the team through Jokic? And, like, they just figured it out. Like, we have to do this. This is our best passer. He gives us the best chance to win. And, you know, the, the fact that he can make some threes, he can put it on the floor, like, they can post him. Like, but he doesn't really play like a traditional center. I, I don't, I don't, I don't particularly, like, I would say that Kevin Love to me is a better outlet passer than Yeah, Yoke. Kevin Love is, is good. But, but in the man. half in the half court, I don't I don't think it's particularly close. I don't think there's anybody else that's as good a passer as him. And like I said, the the only two guys I could really think of were Sabonis is what a lot of older guys say, and and I can't speak to that. 
And then Divac is the only other guy I remember being like, he could pick you apart if you weren't prepared. And I, this is going to sound insulting to Jokic, but I, I, I mean a lighter version. Georgetown Hoy has used to play um, a lot of offense through the center, you know, sort of a key. And like Greg Monroe was our star. So he's not as good as Jokic. His passing's not as good, but he was the primary passer and playmaker for that, that Georgetown team. And the reason I mention it is I think it's, it's more useful than you think because it does draw the big defender out and it allows room underneath for some like, you know, attacking from slashing and the nuggets I think have done a really good job. You know, obviously they shoot, they shop really poorly, but surrounding him with playable competent shooters really brings out the best of his talent in a way that we haven't seen from like Westbrook in Oklahoma city. Like you talk about like everyone on the team is pretty good. So it really helps that when you have a good passer that can actually pass to people who convert those opportunities. That's a pretty interesting point. I, I think, you know, I think you're right. Uh, let's go. Speaking of, you know, other good big man passers, you know, Marcus Gasol and Greg Monroe, Philly wins game two in Toronto, 94-89. Uh, Kawhi plays well again. But for all the Brett Brown haters out there, and, and there are a lot about what Brett Brown can do in games, they, you know, we see the thing about Embiid being, you know, questionable because he had, as he described in his postgame interview, the shits. But they switched up a bunch of the matchups. They have Embiid on Siakam. They have Tobias Harris on Marcus Gasol. They finally decide, like, hey, we have Ben Simmons. He's an elite-level perimeter defender. Like, let's have him guard Kawhi. And to uh, Philly's credit, like, great job defensively. I just – I mean, Toronto missed a lot of shots. But but really, like, great job defensively. Like, very good scheme to decide, like, hey, let's make Siakam shoot a bunch of his threes above the break. Embiid didn't do a great job of that. Siakam's still two for six from the corner. So still six threes, probably more than you want to give up. But – Tobias Harris, like on Marc Gasol, it's the perfect place to hide Tobias Harris. The, 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 the Raptors don't want Gasol to shoot it a ton. He he was 0 for 1 when he was guarded by Harris. He did have three assists in the same uh, possessions, but just a great job, I thought. I, I mean, a really a, a good way to try to limit Siakam. I don't think he'll miss as many shots as he did in Game 3, but still, like, really good decision by the Sixers, I thought, leading into Game 2, and, and it showed in the box score. Yeah, I get these coaches a lot of, both coaches a lot of credit. It's something that I think is kind of an underplayed storyline is how many new pieces they have on both sides. And I just saw a little research um, in terms of new additions, you know, guys who are on the team for the first time. Philadelphia, over half of their minutes are coming from guys who are new, you know, and a lot of them in season, you know, Butler and Tobias Harris and even backups like James Ennis, we talked about earlier, he had a good game 13 and six off the bench. Um, so just working in all these pieces and same for Toronto, oh, you know, over 40% of the team is new. And it seems like Marcus Saul, I wondered how they work him in. It seems like they're just committing to him 35 minutes. They're not really playing Ibaka that much anymore. So I, I do think the Ibaka thing is the one advantage that Toronto knows. I said this in, in after game one, like Toronto knows that like they can't play Ibaka against Embiid for a ton of minutes. And, and I think Ibaka is going to be important if they are to advance, they need to be able to play small. They, they can play Ibaka against Brooke Lopez. That's fine. But I, I think in this series, it's like we got to roll with Marcus Gasol, and and whether or not the you know the Embiid on Siakam thing is such a smart adjustment, and I do think Nate Duncan and Daniel Larue commented on this. I can't remember who actually wrote this article. Maybe it was Rich Hoffman in the Athletic. He covers the Sixers, but they were mentioning that like if you have Embiid on Siakam, it, it allows Embiid to to be more dynamic and help. So when they drive, like, yes, he's responsible for Siakam, but also, like, he can help on Kawhi Leonard. You know, he can help on Kyle Lowry because he's not great in pick and roll, and Siakam's not a great pick and roll player right now. So without him being in pick and roll with a big, he doesn't get matched up on Leonard or Siakam. But if he's with Siakam, like, and Siakam can't get screen and rolls, like, you're not really going to set a screen on Embiid. It's going to make it more ISO heavy, which is better for him because then you can kind of guard Siakam a little bit like Boston's guarding 
Giannis, not the same, obviously, because he's not the same playmaker, but like you can wall off and stop him from getting into the paint. And we saw that with him shooting nine for 25 and he only, you know, two for seven from three. No, I think it is similar. I mean, obviously he's not the same quality, but guys who are, you know, really dynamic, but maybe have one hole in their game still. Like Siakam's like a decent shooter, but he's not a great shooter. Yeah, he's a great, he's a very good corner three-point shooter. And that's, that's what I think Philly tried to limit. And again, I, I, they did not do a great job on that. He's still, still two for six from three. You know, he could go four for six and the game's different. Like, so I do want to, I want to shout that out a little bit. Well, and I think it's, it's a general rule. Maybe I'm oversimplifying. If a guy's not a great shooter, usually putting size on them is the way to go. And if they are, and if they are, if they're Curry, then it's the opposite. Like you can't play a big guy against him. But um, I think, you know, it's been, you know, limiting Giannis to as much as you can in that, in that series. And then same with Siakam here. So I'll be interested to see. I, I do think Nick Nurse is a smart enough coach to like counterpunch. I, I want to see his adjustment. Well, one of the things, one of the things I would say that is a big adjustment in this, I don't know if they can do this going big. I would expect to see some Siakam pick and rolls with like Kawhi. Like I would expect to see Siakam as a pick and roll ball as a screener and, and dribble handoffs with Siakam as well. Like I would expect to see more of that with Siakam being the guy going DHO to get Embiid into more pick and rolls to make him work a little bit harder. I, I, I think that's going to be a big adjustment in game three. Well, and also like, I'd be curious. That's a really good um, observation from a coach. Uh, as a non-coach, as a casual fan, I'm wondering what's happening with Fred Van Vliet. Are you watching? Like, he's just kind of laying eggs right now. He's one of my favorite backup players. Um, he has, you know, 40 minutes, he scored three points. And he's he's one for four total shooting, one for four from the line as well. It's just, I don't know. He, he was so dependable for me. Is, is this like a matchup thing because Philadelphia is so big that it's not the series for him? Or do you think he's going to heat up eventually? I mean, I don't know that I think he's going to heat up. I, I do think, you know, it's hard, a little harder to find a rhythm. You know, Kyle played 43 minutes on Tuesday night and, and just played okay. Like, not great. Made a huge three to make the game close at the end. But maybe if you're a Toronto point guard, you just can't play well in the playoffs. Like, maybe that's just a rule. I, I wouldn't mind, especially in a game like Tuesday. And I know you don't want to blow your rotation up. We talk about being reactionary. But they struggled so much to score outside of Kawhi. Like, I wouldn't mind throwing Jeremy Lin a couple minutes and being like, he's a little bit more dynamic with the ball in his hands. Whereas Van Vliet's a little bit more of a manager, like make open shots, like make the right pass. I don't know that that's not an answer. I also am wondering a little bit if Pat McCaw can't get off the bench just to, to kind of create a little bit more space. Because again, like the biggest advantage they have is like, you can go at Tobias and you can go at JJ Redick when they're in games. Those are the two. Cause Simmons, Embiid and uh, Jimmy Butler are all very good defenders. So I, I think when, Philly does manage to switch one through four, you do end up in situations where the point guard just ends up with a Jimmy Butler or Ben Simmons on them. And that's not going to be a good matchup for Kyle or Fred Van Vliet. So I don't know if maybe, like I said, like just given Jeremy Lin's ability to kind of get to the rim a little bit better, maybe you do go to him in a, in a spurt and see like what that looks like. I, I still think there's time to experiment. Go, you know, just it's one, one, like you're going to Philly. Right. And they have a lot of pieces. It's just like, you know, as Lynn hasn't played that well, Van Fleet hasn't played that well. It's kind of, they're falling flat at the wrong time. And also shout out to Jimmy Butler, who we always hate on 30 and 10. You know, he's, he has such a great attitude. I mean, not great attitude from like, you know, personality standpoint, but from a team perspective, like the intensity. We talked about this after the show, like one, damn like Embiid really tried to turn it over on that three on that three-pointer like that he threw it kind of that over-the-head hook to Jimmy who made it just a huge shot and then Embiid uh, unbelievable finish at the end of the game when they needed a bucket they go to Embiid great big time finish up and under but like Jimmy 
I don't know. Again, I, I said this earlier in the season, and, and this has been very interesting to watch as they've progressed. But given kind of like Ben Simmons's personality, and given Embiid's personality, like maybe they do need Jimmy Butler. Like maybe the the we we've argued that like maybe Covington and Sarge is still a better fit, but like maybe they need Jimmy Butler because in the playoffs, like you need a guy who's not afraid to take big shots. You need a guy who's not afraid of the media. You need a guy who's not afraid of the moment. And like, yes, he shot nine for twenty two. He still finished with thirty, but like. That's Jimmy Butler, and 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 maybe it's Tobias Harris that they should let walk. And I argued this before, like they need a guy who spaces the floor a little bit better than Tobias Harris does. They need a guy who's more of a three and D wing because Harris is just not that from the four spot. He doesn't get a ton of corner threes. Like he can't really handle the ball. It's very clear he's a defensive liability. So maybe they do need to say, you know what, we're going to roll with Jimmy because we know that guy can score an ISO. Like, right? I, I kind of feel the same way. Like. I thought Tobias at the time was a better fit and Jimmy has some limitations, but in terms of attitude too, like I think every team needs a little swagger really. Like, and I think Draymond adds a lot to Golden State um, because their stars in Golden State are kind of, you know, they're not tough in the, in the traditional sense. Um, And I would say, you know, Philadelphia guys, like they're just young and and a beats kind of a goofball. And he's kind of, you, you make the point he's dirty. I don't know if he's tough. He's not tough. Um, I would say he's tough in the sense of like, oh, he's tough because he's a good ass player. But like Embiid and Simmons is the same way. Like these, these are stars. Like they're not. You don't see a lot of guys that are super gritty that have gotten to the point that they're one of the twenty best players in the NBA. And as much as I dislike Jimmy Butler's personality, and and even after the game, right? Like, I don't know if you saw this, right? Brett Brown was like, "That was James Butler. Like that was an adult on the court." And they asked Jimmy Butler about it. It's like a funny quote, right? And I assume Jimmy Butler's first name was James because that's most people that are Jimmy. Did you hear what Jimmy Butler said? He said, like, my name is – he said, my name's actually Jimmy. Like, that's literally my name. Like, just go along with the joke, dude. You know? Like, and that's what makes Jimmy Butler probably as good as he can be, right? Because he is – Well, I thought that was interesting. He is not James Butler. It is kind of surprising, actually. Jimmy Butler the third. So there's been two more non-James Jimmy Butlers out there. It's just like Brett Brown is this – I love Brett Brown. I love his affect. I love the way he deals with this team. I don't love him as, a, as an in-game tactical coach all the time. He did a great job this time. But, like – he makes this comment. It's just like so funny. And then Jimmy Butler's like, no, my name's actually Jimmy. And it's like, all right, Jimmy, we get it, buddy. Like laugh about it, you know? <laughs> well, I, I wonder, like it's interesting from like an analytics standpoint because the analytics guys are ru- ruling the league eventually. And, you know, Minnesota just hired a guy from Houston. How do you factor that in? Like the toughness personality factor? Because Houston, I think, does to some degree. Like PJ Tucker's kind of a tough guy. And Chris Paul's a really chippy guy too. You know, I think he has a little swagger. That maybe James Harden doesn't totally have. Chris Paul, all time, all time dirty NBA player, by the way. You, you don't punch multiple players in the nuts on camera and, and shake that reputation. You do you see he almost did it with Draymond too, when Draymond's hanging on the ring. Uh, it's really bad. I, I, I honestly like this is my problem with Houston, and I don't want to fall back on this, but I, I hate, I, I like hate watching Chris Paul. He's so good too, but it's like I just hate, he complains so much. Like he's never committed a foul. He's so hard on his teammates, and it's like. It's very hard to root for Chris Paul and then coupling that with James Harden. It's very amusing that the team that has, you know, three first team all NBA guys and has like kind of made the league a little less fun in the playoffs is the team that people seem to be rooting for against Houston. It is weird, or at least I am. But I'm curious, I want to get if we ever have like a a GM in here, Daryl Morey, you're welcome to come on. Um, how you how you analytically match personalities. Because like Harden, don't you agree that Harden is 
you know, not everyone has to be a vocal rah rah leader. Yeah, he's not, and he's not. He, he's not. And, and people know that. And that's why, like, that's why I don't like hating on him as a personality because it's nothing to hate on. He's kind of just like vacant stares, you know? Like, he might be like autistic or something. I don't even know. But, like, he's just sort of like a basketball machine. Yeah. And, and I think a lot of guys are like that. I, I think, like, I'll give you one that I know of for a fact, and that's, that's Kyle Lowry. Like, he is not really a vocal leader, but he is chippy. He's tough. Like, he works really hard. Like, he is a Philly guy in the sense that, like, he just goes to work and he does his job. And I think that lends you to being more of a leader where like if he does speak up in the locker room, people pay attention. Like I, we know for a fact that Kawhi Leonard was not – that's just not who he is. Like he's he's an unbelievable player, the best player on your team, but he's never going to be the guy in the locker room that's like we need to do this. That's not who he is. And, you know, I, I we, we, we talk about this a lot, but I, I mentioned that at some point we'll try to get Lavoie Allen on here just because, uh, you know, he's a good friend of mine and, and we'll talk a little bit about his time with the Pacers, but – the one thing was, as crazy as that team was, whenever David West said something, that was it. Like, it was over. If David West said, we're doing this, then we're doing it. And the one the one thing I remember, like, wholeheartedly was I, I was talking to him one day after they they went kind of far in the playoffs with, with Philly, and Elton Brand was still on the team, and they were going to agree to give up a part of their playoff share to, like, the trainer and the strength coach, right? So as people who aren't familiar about this, as far as you go in the playoffs – you get a check from the league for like TV revenue. It's a playoff share. The further you go, the bigger it is. And every player gets a share. And what teams will do is they'll pool some of that money together and be like, hey, we're going to give a full playoff share to the trainer and a full playoff share to the rep, to the, the strength coach. So let's just say it's $50,000 is a playoff share. So that every player on the team will take like thirty grand or something. Well, a couple guys on the team, I'm not going to name their names, several of them still play in the NBA, didn't want to do that. And Elton Brand literally sat in the locker room and was like, no, like, this is what we're doing. Like, we can fight about it if you want, but this is how you treat the people that are on your team. And everyone went along with it. And so the trainer and the strength coach got, you know, whatever number that playoff share was added to their paycheck. Obviously, huge money for them. But, like, that's what you see from leaders. Those are the guys you hear of. Elton Brand, David West, you know, Kevin Garnett, like, that, that, that set the tone of how you're supposed to act. And I don't know if Jimmy Butler really is that type of guy for Philly. But I do think that he's that personality that kind of shows like on the court, we're okay because we have this tough guy who we can follow. And I I think Jimmy Butler's personality is lame, but he is a tough dude on the court. There's no question about that. Yeah, and that's what's so disappointing about his time in Minnesota. Because like that's exactly what he was supposed to bring to that team, which, you know, two stars who are a little more passive as well. Um, And he was going to be that leader for them. You know, it's interesting that Lavoie Allen insight, and I thought it was interesting you mentioned to me. I don't know if this is, you know, throwing him under the bus. Apparently, big Game of Thrones fan. Oh, loves loves Game of Thrones. He's not. You're not throwing anybody under the bus. He loves Game of Thrones. Um, yeah, and you're still not watching. You're still hanging in there. Well, I'm not hanging you're in like there. Like the last holdout. I mean, I need to start watching just so like I can go on social media on Sunday nights and Monday mornings because like it's just all memes now. It's all people talking about the episode and memeing. And I don't care about spoilers. Like at this point, like if you haven't started watching, like that's, you know, you're at the mercy of what it is. But it's like even when I see that like on Bovada now, like you can you can still bet and like the odds change for who's going to run the Iron Throne after this giant freaking battle. Like I just I it's a sensation, Zan. And I heard this episode sucked. I heard Sunday night's episode was either. Either it was the greatest episode ever or it was the be- the worst episode ever. Like there was nobody that was like, yeah, it was cool. It was just one of the two. Yeah. I, I, the two thoughts on that. I, do you think you missed something by not being part of the national conversation? And like, that's why I'm, I want to try to encourage you to watch The Bachelorette this week, as stupid as it is. I thought, uh, but I thought The Bachelorette does way worse than The Bachelorette. It does. It does. But you know, it's, it's on. So we got to watch what's on. I, there's something fun about like 
the United States of America coming together to watch a show, you know, whether it was like Survivor back in the day or American Idol or Game of Thrones now, and just like being able to pretty much talk to anybody except for Tyler about it. If I ran into Lavoy Allen, I could talk to him for 30 minutes about something that we have in common. He was he was at my house. He stopped in to he drove down to Nashville after watching the Pacers and we spent three hours of him just Can like we do, on the that, if you if you book Lavoy Allen, let's book him before after the finale of Game of Thrones. That's the time to get him. We won't even mention basketball. Um but talking about Game of Thrones, here's my quick thoughts. Um and spoiler free, I will try to avoid specific spoilers. Um so it's safe to listen. I didn't like the episode, and I think in general, we're talking big picture. Like, what's so great about Game of Thrones, and I would encourage people to watch it, um, it's it's adult fantasy. Like, so something like Star Wars, or specifically Lord of the Rings, like, they're incredible in terms of, like, the world they created and the fun they have, but they are a little childlike, you know, intentionally so. They're, like, good guys versus bad guys, you know, epic adventure, you know, and that's great. But Game of Thrones is supposed to be like an elevated version of that, where it's like, we're going to have Lord of the Rings, but like actually treat everyone as three-dimensional characters, even the bad guys. We're going to have sex and violence and rape and torture um, and treat everything really seriously. I mean, at at its core, like that's why The Wire and The Sopranos and Breaking Bad worked, because every character on the show was pretty fully developed, if you will. Right. And so without getting into specifics, that's why I don't like episodes of this past Game of Thrones, where it just falls back into, hey, we're Lord of the Rings now. And we're going to do maybe a spoiler, maybe not like a worse version of Lord of the Rings in terms of like how you choreograph a battle. So let me ask you this question real quick. And, and this is not going to be a spoiler, but obviously everybody, everybody knows that this was like a, the biggest battle. Like they, they talked about how it shot, like it, it took them 59 days or 55 days to shoot it, 700 something hours, like, you know, and, and it was the longest battle scene in television or film history. And what I saw people complaining about was that they never got to like really understand what the night King's deal was like. Right. Like that, well, that's a more specific spoiler, but I agree. But that, that's to my point of like all the bad guys need um, a purpose. Like in Lord of the Rings, like Sauron's the bad guy. He's just an evil eye in the sky or whatever. Even Star Wars, which um, I guess you get to know Darth Vader or whatever, but you don't really get to know the emperor or like what he's trying to do. He's just, evil. He's, the, he's the bad guy. Like he's who the good guys are fighting against. And it's funny to me, like there's always that conflicted character, whether it's Darth Vader or Kylo Ren, um, where it's like, I don't know which side to pick, you know, I'm so torn, you know, do I side with the rebels or the dark side? It's like, well, <laughs> sounds like one of those is bad. One of those is good. It, it's, this is why I've had this problem before. And I think you've watched the show, but this was my problem with Ozark on Netflix is like, they want to shoot Ozark as like it's Breaking Bad, where you side with Jason Bateman and Laura Linney because they're they were apparently good people who had to make bad decisions, kind of like how Breaking Bad did with Walt. But you never had a backstory of Jason Bateman. They were just all of a sudden involved with the cartel, and it's like, why should I feel bad for these people? Like with with Walter White, it's like, hey, he had cancer, like he made these terrible decisions. This is why you cared about those characters. But in Game of Thrones, it's not like that, right? Because like nobody was rooting for the Night King, right? <laughs> I would love to beat the people who were. That's an edgy person. But but so, um, I saw somebody tweet that like they did cover up that plot hole that like the Night King, he's just – and I don't know the whole deal with like the White Walkers and like the wall and everything. And like LaVoy actually, actually explained it to me and I, I can't tell him that. Well, it, that's why like – you know, this is now where hopefully you turned it off if you haven't seen the episode. But like – that's the part of game. Of, I mean, Lord of Game of Thrones. Sorry, that I don't enjoy as much is the the simplicity of like 
bunch of zombies. They're basically zombies, um, like storming in, and like you have to fight the evil zombies, the faceless, personalityless, um, no real motive or motivation zombies. Um, and and the people were kind of because the show, you know, the backstory is usually so sophisticated and nuanced. You were thinking that there was going to be more to it. Like we're going to see the twist, and the Night King is right, or the Night King is so and so. He's secretly this character. Um, but, it, but there no, was it was yeah, just he's a, he's a zombie he's just a zombie and then the other thing that i heard and again no spoilers on this episode because if you haven't seen it by now well you kind of have implied but you know i do agree like game of thrones has reached a level of like live sports where it's like if somebody told me like oh don't tell me what happened in game two of uh warriors rock because i haven't watched it yet it's like it's kind of on you right. I, I texted point. i think i texted you and said that like i wasn't gonna be able to watch the whole game so i wanted to watch it in the morning so don't text me like, but then I was texting because I was watching the first half, and then you, you know, you didn't text me until after I saw the second. Half. I, not intentionally, but like it, I've been in that situation, or you don't watch Game of Thrones the night of, or you don't watch the game the night of. You have to like be vigilant, you know, like you have to be on the night's watch, like being like, I can't check my phone, I can't check CNN, I can't check gifts. But I, I did hear that they had a rather large plot hole, and I don't want to really get super deep into this, but one of the things was I, I have long thought that like Game of Thrones in the last couple of years has done a little bit more like pandering to its audience, I think. And they know that they have a very high level, like female viewership. And so, you know, Arya Stark and, uh, or Maisie Williams and, and like Sophie Turner, like they are, they are mega stars, right. And people love them. Well, obviously like the end of the Night King episode, I heard a lot of people saying like, well, they didn't really explain how the ending happened or like, right. Well, I, I, I'll try to avoid specifics. I can tell you off air, but like, I do agree with it. That's that's an interesting observation because I do think that it's almost become politicized as everything in life, like your take on it. If you don't like, like as a general rule, Arya is this like tough little girl. She's like a badass assassin. And there are a lot of people who love watching her be a badass or watching her, you know, kill people. Um, and I think in a way she's like become like a feminist icon in that way where she's like, women are strong, women are badasses. And, and you root, you're almost on her team for that reason. Um, that doesn't necessarily make for an interesting, you know, st- in terms of like a cold hearted story or character point of view. But like, I feel like people do feel like this allegiance. And I do feel like they kind of, I don't, I don't want to say pandering. I would say like leaning into feminist themes in a, in a genre that doesn't always do that. Uh, real quick, before we get out of here, we have 30 seconds, Dan. Can you give me the odds for the net for game three on Bovada just so we know? And then. Yeah, let's pick let's pick winners because we're doing this before the game, um, and I, I did mark it. It's really interesting how close all the lines are. I'm gonna have you pick. Do you want to pick series or winners? Let's, pick, let's just pick winners. Let's pick winners for right now. I mean, we can pick series, but I, I think it'll be easier. Yeah, no, it, it's close. They're all close. Okay, so Toronto, Philadelphia, Philadelphia is plus two at home. So Toronto's technically still the favorite in Game Three. That's a little disappointing. I think I would pick. I think I would go with Toronto money line if I was going to pick it. But I, I, I probably would take Toronto minus two. I agree. I think in all these, I think they're going to split. So I would lean to the underdog in almost all of them. But this is the one where I'm not 100 percent sure. So I would avoid it. I don't. I think Toronto might win both games. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that because I also think that Philly could come out and be their crowd could be so crazy they could have so much energy early and then get worn down a little bit. Um, Milwaukee, Boston. Boston is favored at home minus two. I, I like legitimately hate that line because like Vegas, you know, Boston was a seven point dog in Milwaukee. Like, I guess I'll, I, I guess I like Boston in game in game three. But like with Brogdon coming back, like I, I don't really know. I, I think I would stay away from it. I, I don't plan on on betting on it. That That's one to me that I, I legitimately have no idea the way the way it goes, especially if Brogdon's going to play. 
Well, I just don't understand why if Toronto's a two point favorite on the road, why Milwaukee would not be the favorite. So I would like if I had to bet, I would bet Milwaukee in that one. Um, Denver, Portland, close series. Uh, Portland at home, predictably favored, minus four, though. Yeah, I would take Denver in the points. I just think it's so close, and I wouldn't expect Denver to shoot as bad, and I think that guys will tend to overreact to something like that and be like, oh, Portland's figured it out defensively, when in reality, like Denver just missed a ton of shots. And if you if you don't want to do the points, like Moneyline plus 165 for Denver. That's really you know, good. If they're gonna win, that's really good. If they're going to win one and two, that's a good bet. Um, Golden State-Houston, the marquee matchup, Houston minus three and a half. You figure they're going to win at least one of the two, but which one do you do you get? I, I texted you before the game, before game two, and I, I, you have the receipts of this. We could actually tweet this out, but that there was way too much public money on Houston before game two, and I didn't understand it. And I think it was like seventy percent of the the money line was Houston, and like sixty three percent of like the money against the spread was on Houston. I expect it to be like that again, and I will be betting on Golden State if that's the case. If if all of the public is betting Houston. I'm just doing the opposite of the public. Because, again, I think this is a coin flip. I do expect Houston to win one. I, I, I tend to agree with you. I don't think they're winning two. But, like, I, I just don't I just don't understand. I think people want to bet Houston because they're like, well, they have to win. And, and I, don't, I don't know that they do have to win any games. I really don't feel that way. Well, I think the public's betting kind of like how I'm betting or thinking about it, which is why I'll probably stay away. But I think Houston comes out, wins a game, maybe handily, and then sets up a really big game four, which is back and forth and close, and Golden State pulls it out. And the goal was up 3-1, and then just Houston, for lack of, a letter, lack of a better word, just folds in game five, and then they lose 4 Here is one thing, too, that's realistic. Uh, Houston was plus five in game one, so they, they cover against the spread. They were, they were plus five and a half in game two. They, they likely should have covered hard and fouled probably for no reason up four, down four. They, they probably should have covered game two as well. So if you do kind of look into that. Houston is one and one against the spread, but again, kind of ridiculous that they didn't cover, especially because Harden didn't take a shot at the end of the game when he could have down six. Like, so if you look into those trends, you know, it's not like Houston's been like getting blown out against the spread. So I just want, what's Daryl Morey's reaction if they go down through three Oh, is there anything he does? God, I don't know, man. I don't, I don't know. Like I said, I'm really interested, and in, you don't you don't want to talk about this. We'll do a post mortem on on some teams like Houston and Philly as the you know really interesting teams going into next year. Once you know whoever does get eliminated, because I do think those teams are very interesting to look at because they have some flexibility, or they won't, and they got to figure out a way to compete because the window has been shut real, real tight the last five years, and all of a sudden it's going to be wide open. And teams like Houston, Philly, Milwaukee, Toronto, the Clippers, the Lakers, you know. Denver, like they're all going to be all of a sudden, even Dallas, I think, are going to be gunning to, to try to figure out a way to like compete for the next three, four years because you don't know how long the window is going to be open for. And I think that's going to be very interesting. But that's it for us. A little bit longer. Uh, you can email us, ellison at gmail.com. He is uh, at Zan underscore Ellison. Get all his Game of Thrones takes. I'm at COS Tyler. And Zan, we will be back Monday morning, just like always, two times a week, playoff mode. It's, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah, great. Great. Yeah, the playoffs have been really good. Plenty to talk about. Um, We'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Underdog Sports NBA Show with your hosts, Tyler Laurie and Zandrick Ellison. Tune in next week for more NBA storylines and news.